Dr. Liza Schneider was born in South Africa. Her conservationist father introduced her to a variety of animals, and she grew up with her own menagerie of pets. After receiving her veterinary degree, she moved to Auckland, New Zealand in 2000 and began working in small animal practice. In addition to enjoying general practice and surgery, she found herself drawn to holistic therapies that could help her address the root of her patient's problems. In 2003, she started a mobile practice that included both allopathic and holistic care. That practice, Holistic Vets, has grown from a mobile practice to a multi-doctor practice in a large standalone facility that continues to offer the best of both traditional and holistic health solutions, including hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Dr. Schneider serves as president of the New Zealand Veterinary Association's Complementary Veterinary Medicine Branch. She is also the founding trustee and veterinarian for the ARRC Wildlife Trust, whose mission includes veterinary rehabilitation, a community cat project, and education of children about environmental sustainability, conservation, animal welfare, and responsible pet ownership. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Schneider as we discuss growing up in South Africa, moving to New Zealand to practice, starting a mobile integrated practice, and growing that practice into an award-winning veterinary facility while being active in wildlife rehabilitation and education. Dr. Schneider, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your childhood. Well, I was really privileged. I grew up in South Africa. A magnificent land, just so incredible with an abundance of wildlife, incredible landscapes. And I was so fortunate because my dad was involved with conservation and uh, I experienced incredible things like um, wildlife rehabilitation with lion cubs, wild dogs, cheetah, getting close up to baby rhinoceros and hippopotamus and big eagles and rehabilitation. And as a kid, we had a lot of different pets as well, some very exotic, like a little monkey and a tortoise that we called Archie that came to be called Archina after she laid some eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so did you know you wanted to be a veterinarian pretty early on? I knew I wanted to work with animals. and then. Uh, Growing up, having a lot of pets when they were sick or injured, and I felt so helpless, I knew that if I wanted to work with animals, the first thing I needed to do was to learn to be a vet so that I could know how to heal them. Um, so you went to vet school in South Africa then? I did, yeah. How many were in your class? A hundred. All right. And how many women out of that hundred? That's a really good question. I think, um, I don't think we were quite 50-50, but it was certainly close. Yeah. Was it a good experience? Amazing. It's the, some of the best years of my life. I look back on my vet class with such pride. They're such wonderful people. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you got out? Um, I always knew wildlife rehabilitation was one of the top things that I wanted to do. And uh, basically surgery, I loved emergency medicine that I loved. And at the time, um, my my partner, uh, my stepdad was shot and killed in South Africa, so he was really keen to get out of South Africa. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, let's go for an overseas experience in New Zealand. And um, he was he was right, it's much easier living in a beautiful place like New Zealand. The pastures are greener with much less two-legged wildlife without AK-47s. <laughs> oh, jeez. So did you go there right after school? Yeah, I graduated and then um, left for New Zealand and got into practice. And it was so awesome because working as a vet, I got paid to do what I love and I was not having to work as hard as I was as a vet student. Did you know Did you ha did you you know anyone there or did you just go blindly? 
Yeah, I didn't actually have many connections in New Zealand, a couple of family friends really, but uh, it's the company that my partner was working for in Johannesburg in South Africa bought a company in New Zealand and they needed to do someone who did exactly what he did. So the red carpet was rolled out for him and at the time New Zealand was really short of vets. So uh, being that um, New Zealand was sort of uh, – uh, more of a, a wilderness type country as opposed to going across to the UK where it was lots of people. It was definitely more appealing to go over to New Zealand. Had you um, practiced anywhere else or you just went straight from, from school to New Zealand then? Straight from school to New Zealand. Yeah. And then that was into uh, what sort of practice? Yeah. Small animal practice. Uh a, a general practice, or did you do emergency work, or both? Yeah, um, it was mainly just um, your usual day-to-day work with uh, sharing the on-call roster. And as time went by, I started to look at what else I could do and where else I could help. And uh, it, in Auckland, where I was working, there were emergency clinics that I could do extra work. And I'm a little bit of a workaholic. I love my work. <laughs> thought we should set up Workaholics Anonymous, but none of us would pitch the meetings because we were too busy working. <laughs> 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 so I did the odd shift there and uh, yeah, I loved that kind of work and what the practices that I worked at gave me the opportunity to advance my surgical skills to doing some orthopedics and uh, it was a fantastic foundation there. Uh, did you find that your your education prepared you well for that sort of that sort of work? It was really good. Um, the way that we were taught at vet school in South Africa, I think it was just such a wonderful um, approach because we were we got that great balance of you know practical knowledge of what you can do to make a difference as well as all the theoretical stuff, which I think is so important, but it's so easy to get caught up in all the theoretical stuff without getting down to the nitty-gritty of what you need to do in practice. And further to that was uh, as I started to progress in practice, I started to become frustrated with the diseases that we see, you know, degenerative joint conditions, uh, heart disease, um, so many others. And especially in the emergency bits where our conventional medicine can be so fantastic, a lot of the other stuff, it was just dishing out the same old anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, antibiotics. So that frustration really grew in me and I knew that I needed to do, to do more to help my patients. So what'd you do? So <laughs> when I was growing up in South Africa, I was also really fortunate that I had a couple of really open-minded parents. And uh, my younger brother was really sickly kid. He had asthma and he struggled. And I was always embarrassed to say that I, I used to beat him up a fair bit. But these days he's one of the top martial <laughs> artists in the world. So I kind of take a little bit of pride in my embarrassing bit of beating him up because I reckon I trained him for the role. <laughs> <laughs> But um, they had the foresight to take him to a homeopath and the the homeopath turned his life around and uh, that's why he's this amazing big and tough guy that he is today. Unfortunately, conventional medicine wasn't helping his asthma. So that was lesson number one when I was younger, just seeing how health can be transformed with thinking outside the square. And when I was younger, I loved competing with sports. So hockey, tennis, swimming, running, karate. I was always busy doing something like that. And if I was sick or injured, I didn't want to let my team down. And if the doctor told me that I, I couldn't play my sport for four weeks, that really didn't go down well. So again, I was really fortunate because my parents would take me to an osteopath or a chiropractor for my injury. And I was competing, you know, way beyond what the doc doctor told me was possible. So that in my youth, as well as witnessing the incredible harmony of nature that goes on out in the wild, that really instilled in me that where there's a will, there's a way. 
So when I was out in veterinary practice and I was starting to see these disease conditions and animals that were just relying on my medication and then needing more medication for the side effects of that medication and getting into that vicious, vicious cycle, I took a step back and went, oh, well, you know, what can I take from my youth to apply here so that I can really help my patients and really make a difference to their health and well-being? And so um, being a little bit of a, a practical soul, I started to embark on a journey of what can I learn really quickly and efficiently that's really going to make a difference to my patients. And I did some short courses in various things and applied things like nutritional medicine and nutraceuticals, which I love, uh, little bits of acupuncture, a treatment that I do called NIS, which uses applied kinesiology and acupuncture principles. And uh, yeah, these days my veterinary practice has also got a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which is just so fantastic to use. And that's such oh, a joy geez. having these options. So how big was the practice? How many, how many vets were in the practice that you started in? Just myself practicing at, the, oh, sorry, in Auckland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first practice I, would, I was in had another three older vets who were quite stained in their ways. And um, that was a very short-lived little journey of three months at the practice because uh, we clashed too much. I wanted to use things that I'd been taught at university and they just wanted things to be kept in their little boxes. And then um, the next practice that I went to work at oh, was wonderful. There were um, four other vets and uh, the boss really knew her stuff and had a really open approach, encouraged me to explore using acupuncture and laser acupuncture and the orthopedics and emergency medicine I was really tutored well in. But then you decided to strike out on your own. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was actually an interesting journey because that was in Auckland and uh, I'd worked two years in that practice in Auckland and my partner was getting frustrated working in another big city and for me it felt like I'd reached a place in my career where I still needed to do more for my patients and although that practice was quite open-minded, I still couldn't do things to the level or depth that I wanted. And so there was an opportunity to move down to Tauranga, which is where I am at the moment, or still. <laughs> and uh, it was for a vet to join as part of a holistic animal center where there is an animal naturopath, herbalist. And so I thought this could be a fantastic opportunity to potentially find the lifestyle that we wanted outside of a big city and learn a whole lot more about helping animals in that way. And that also turned out to be a bit of a short-lived venture. Um, I, I helped to set up that practice and integrate veterinary care, but the lady who ran it um, wanted things really to be done her way. And again, I was limited with what I could do. So uh, within three months again, I was left in a position where I had a handful of clients, but no place to see them from. And I never wanted to be in business, but it felt to me that the only way that I was going to truly be able to deliver the service that I wanted to the standard that I wanted was to have to work for myself and run my own business, which is why I've got gray hair these days. <laughs> <laughs> so you started on your own. And if I read correctly, you started it just out of your car. Yeah, I did. I built it out of the boot of my car. So I was a mobile vet driving around doing, um, I used to do large animals back in those days. And I felt like a real James Herriot going around the beautiful green New Zealand countryside, seeing all sorts of animals um, and, you know, doing all the, the basic stuff of what a vet does. I remember there was a calf with a broken leg and the farmer was embarrassed because he'd, he'd run her over and he didn't want to get his local vet or tell his neighbor that he was helping this calf. So I went over and put a 
plaster cast on it and we kept the calf in, or they kept the calf in the shed so that nobody could see and the calf went on to make a full recovery and became one of their best milkers. <laughs> but I, I also set up the practice with the angle that it was, in those days, it was holistic veterinary services. So it was attracting those stubborn cases where conventional medicine wasn't meeting the needs of the animal or the client. And so uh, that that was hard because, as you, you guys will know, those cases take a lot of time and energy to work through, yet it was a fantastic challenge to figure out how can I think outside the square to help these animals where our conventional paradigm hasn't. And, um, yeah, really exciting. But, again, running a business and a small little business, I had to be the administrator. I had to learn that steep learning curve of running a business. And over the years, it's grown and grown and grown and um, I got into making little premises with my first surgery, which was wonderful because then I could do surgery again and then bigger premises. And uh, three and a half years ago, we moved into our current building, which is just big and beautiful and we never have to move again. And I'm really fortunate to work with another four wonderful vets and get their insights and ideas. And yeah, we, we make a big difference. And with my love for wildlife, I also set up a charitable trust that uh, helps support with wildlife rehabilitation. And in New Zealand, that's mainly wildlife as in wild birds, there's not much four-legged wildlife or mammals. <laughs> How long did you work out of your car before you got to the point where you could go into that small space? Yeah, it was uh, probably a couple of years. And there's always the, the balance running a business where you go, oh, is it worth it now to spend that money on premises uh, versus just being mobile and getting out and around to people and doing those home visits was also fantastic insight into the animal's home you know what goes on in their home environment with that holistic approach how else can you help this animal and the insights that you gained were just fantastic yeah i'm, I'm sure but the trade-off was all the. i imagine there was a fair bit of driving yeah, there was, but um, planning your day carefully usually worked out well unless there was an unexpected emergency. And thank goodness at that stage, the, the, the city Taronga wasn't too huge, so it was relatively easy to get around. Good. So you get this small space, and then how long was it until you could actually hire some help, get an associate Yeah, another staff? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, um, when I was at high school in South Africa, I had a biology teacher, Bev, and um, Bev moved to New Zealand around the time where I had my first premises and um, she was looking for something to do and she ended up being my first receptionist, which was just crazy in the small little world. But uh, it was just initially her fielding the calls and me still going out doing a combination then of mobile work as well as being at the practice. And uh, one of the clients that I attracted was a dog with a bladder tumor that um, she was struggling to address. And so uh, I helped her with her dog and she being a vet nurse thought, oh, she could help me with the surgery. And we set up a little surgery. And so those were my first two staff members. Um, was it nice to get back into doing surgery again then? It was wonderful. Having said that, though, while I was doing my mobile service, um, because I was sort of so desperate to just stay in a, a normal sort of sense of doing vet stuff, I missed that easy, you know, cat's got a laceration, put under anesthetic, suture it up, um, or, you know, dog's got a sore eye. You just check it out and, and do some, some basic approach as opposed to those really tricky, complex cases that I was attracting. So at that time, um, the Rotorua SBCA, which is about an hour's drive from Tauranga, they were looking for a vet to help. So that was a fabulous opportunity to help them with the basic stuff that they needed. And uh, they always used to tease me about my boot because being a mobile service, I was always proud that I was prepared 
prepared for any situation. And in there, of course, I had a host of complementary therapies to help. And we did some lovely things. For example, when they had a breakout of parvovirus, we'd put the pups in surrounding cages on vitamin C and it seemed to stop the spread. And um, even some of the, the, the staff members there, they go, oh, you know, I've, I've had this abscess on my shoulder. It's not going away. Have you got anything in your boot for that? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of everything. Yeah. Was it important to you to continue to do conventional care along with the the alternative things that you were doing, the complementary things? Yeah, yeah. For me, I get a real buzz out of the emergency work and just being there in in an animal's time of need. And I've I've sort of thought a lot about how my practice continues to grow and evolve and how to make it more sustainable. And it has come up, you know, well, what if we created a referral service that just did complementary therapies as opposed to just the general vet work we, and bring integrating the best of both worlds where we do both. And for me, uh, I'm not, I'm not ready to take that step. I love the, I love it both. I love both sides and just helping animals in any way that I can. And as I say, being there for our people when they need us is just the ultimate. Sure. So how long do you think after you started that practice out of your car before you could hire another veterinarian? Yeah. So um, that was, it took me five years to get the practice into position to do that. And she's a wonderful vet. She came from America, Karen. And um, she started off and I remember my first day off, my mom was visiting from South Africa and uh, this, we went for a walk on our beautiful beach at the mount and um at the base of the mount there's this magical rock pool and some kids were playing in it and uh they called us they they said come and look at this penguin and so this was my first day off i didn't have the phone with me i didn't have to worry about the practice i had my mom visiting from south africa and we went and we looked at this magnificent animal out in the wild in its natural environment i didn't have to examine it i didn't have to poke and prod it i didn't have to inject it i could just admire it but the more i looked the more I could see that actually it had a bit of a head tilt. It was swimming in circles <laughs> and this animal was in trouble. So I went and used my little jacket and catched it. And on my first day off, I took my mom back to the veterinary practice and we gave this little penguin some veterinary care. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, so was it um... – how was it to introduce your clients to a new veterinarian? You've been doing that. I mean, you'd started the practice. You've had all these uh, clients who were used to seeing you. Was it difficult to to introduce a new, a new veterinarian into the practice? The awesome thing was that Karen had some amazing talents that I didn't. And um, as a vet, being interested in using complementary therapies, I've never studied any of them to the depth and length that others have. And I so admire those who have. I've sort of picked up the stuff that you can use quickly and easily. But yeah, Karen had in-depth knowledge of homeopathy, herbal medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture. And she was amazingly insightful and intuitive with the animals with such a lovely, gentle nature. So it was just so exciting to introduce someone else with a whole realm of other insight to provide care for our patients and our, and their, their humans. And uh, working together, it was just such a thrill to have somebody else's opinion and someone else to bounce off. That's wonderful. So how did you get so lucky to find her? Oh, <laughs> Uh, we in New Zealand we created a veterinary conference so I'm also president of the complementary veterinary medicine branch of the New Zealand Veterinary Association and part of that is creating our annual conferences and our speaker uh, Deva Kulsa she 
she was discussing, you know, stress and practice. And at that stage, I was really stretched and just struggling to find the right person to help me or any person whatsoever. And of course, um, New Zealand, our veterinary fraternity is pretty conservative and it's not so easy to find somebody with that skill set. Even today, it's easier. And she was saying how she had this wonderful vet, Karen, who was looking at moving to New Zealand and it just worked out beautifully. Wow. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you what. I mean, it's it's kind of unique. And usually, when you see a vet or run across a veterinarian who's doing complementary work, that's what they want to do. They don't want to do both the traditional and the complementary. So to find someone like that must have been like a needle in a haystack almost. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in what I observed is that um, when. I guess it's the same way that I, I left South Africa. And when you live in New Zealand and you don't have, have that threat of people who can hijack you and having to lock your door and that sort of thing, and you live in a harmonious place like New Zealand where you can leave your front door unlocked. And when I went back to visit South Africa, I realized how much I had to harden my heart living in South Africa, which was so sad because it's such a beautiful place. But I think similarly in vet practice, the opportunity to practice as an integrative vet um, you you do have the best of both worlds, but when you do just complementary therapies and you don't have to cut and slice and work with some of the harsh stuff, I think it's it's gentler in some ways, especially if you've got the time in practice with the right model to give your clients all that time and space that you need to really meet their needs. And in general practice, you don't you're not necessarily afforded that opportunity. So I think for Karen coming into that, that was challenging, but she was amazing. She embraced it and she was really keen to learn and see what she could do. And I was just so grateful to have somebody with such amazing help and that intent to, to make a difference. It's got to give, give you some uh, sense of, of pride that you can, you can bring in a patient though, and, and treat all of their needs you know, whether it's the complimentary stuff or the, the traditional stuff that, you know, you've got a, you've got a way to, to handle most anything. Yeah, and it's so elegant. I love it. There's a lovely phrase, when you know what the magician knows, it's no longer magic. But gosh, it can really seem like magic sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you two work together before you were able to get another one then? Yeah, um, I think it was... Two, two and a half years, and then Karen felt that um, moving to doing just uh, complementary therapies was what she really needed. And um, at that stage, yeah, the practice was in a place where the economy had hit, hit us hard, and that was actually helpful that she'd made that decision so that gave the practice a little bit of a breather and then it wasn't long before we got a another vet on board and they stayed for I think a year or two and then um, we had another vet on board that stayed for a couple of years and then we transitioned to our bigger premises and the yeah the big premises have just really facilitated an amazing growth and uh, yeah now it's so wonderful to have another four vets to help. So uh, with the veterans that you have now, do, do they all do both traditional and complementary care? In a way, um, I haven't been able to find another vet like Karen who was just so well-versed in that complementary therapy side that could really integrate it so beautifully, have the communication skills, work as a team, and uh, really support the practice. So I kind of took up another strategy of finding vets who genuinely really care and want to do everything that they 
can for their patients that are well-skilled with conventional medicine and are keen to learn other ways. So at our practice, um, one of our vets, she, she does acupuncture, and she did that years ago but hadn't integrated it much into practice, and now she's got the opportunity to do that, which is good. Um, one of our other vets, he's recently done the CIVT acupuncture course, so he's integrating that in. Um, another one of our vets has just started doing the herbal medicine course, and then when they start working at our practice, we've got our, our team guide, and I kind of give them a crash course and the stuff that I've learned over the years that's really easy to integrate. So nutrition's the foundation. You've always Always got to be thinking okay this cat's presenting for an abscess it's not just inspect inject and collect it's going okay why has this cat got an abscess what can we do for this cat's environment to help to prevent this from happening again what can we do to support this cat's ability to heal how can we help our clients to understand that there are tools and resources that they can make use of so we attract a range of clients too. There are some who just want a very basic veterinary approach, but others who would love to avoid the use of conventional medicine if it's appropriate for their animal. And our vets are given um, the tools to be able to present all of that as far as possible and navigate what is best based on the needs of the animal, um, the animal's human and of course the needs of the vet because again different vets we've got different skill sets we're confident and feel that different surgical medical or therapeutic approaches work better in our hands so everybody's encouraged to kind of do the best that they can with those tools as long as there's open and honest communication with the client and the animal's welfare comes first wonderful so how long have you been in the in the facility that you're in now um three and a half years all right. Now, did, did was it a significant upgrade in size then from the previous yeah, place? Yeah, and also to the better end of the street. <laughs> All right. Did now I'm interested in the in the hyperbaric oxygen. Had you been doing that prior to this move? Yeah. So um, when I moved to New Zealand and uh, at the first veterinary practice that I worked at, I as a young graduate, I anesthetized a cat for a neuter, and um, this cat's heart stopped. And it took us four hours to resuscitate him. And he was brain damaged in the process. And I felt absolutely awful because I first do no harm. And I'd gone in for a basic procedure trying to do my best to help this cat. And this cat came out all the worse for it. And so I, I wanted to do everything that I could to help this animal. And I knew from scuba diving in South Africa, our uh, scuba diving instructor's niece had had uh, hypoxia when she was born. And she had also had a little bit of a brain injury in that regard. And uh, she had sessions in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which is used for diving. And this helped her brain immensely. So after this had happened to this cat, I tracked down a facility in Auckland on the North Shore that had a hyperbaric chamber. It was used for humans. But the lovely man who ran it, Pete, he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Just we'll sneak him in after hours. And this cat went on to make a good recovery with the help of the hyperbaric chamber. So in the hyperbaric chamber, for those that don't know, it basically floods the body with a really high concentration of oxygen. So it's this, it's similar to being at depth under 10 meters of water and breathing oxygen at that depth with almost 100% oxygen. Oxygen can diffuse through the fluids of the body as opposed to just being reliant on transport with red blood cells. So there's like a 400% increase in the amount of oxygen available to cells, especially in areas of the body where you 
red blood cells can't get to easily. So for crushed injuries, hypoxia, it's just fantastic. And it's recognized for things like skin grafts and bone healing. But hey, common sense says that every cell needs oxygen. So why would you not use it for anything really? Uh, but I've realized common sense is not so common. <laughs> so um, with uh, Pete and this little cat that we helped, um, who made a really good recovery, except unfortunately he was left deaf. Uh, there was the odd case that I had here and there that I referred to him. So one of my after-hours shifts, I had this lovely dog, Jock, a West Highland Terrier that came in and he'd choked on a bone. And I was just a young grad. I was out three months and uh, this bone was lodged in his esophagus. It was um, Christmas Eve and uh, I was the only vet around. I couldn't get hold of anyone to help me, so I had to figure out how to help this dog. So I anesthetized him, um, tried to retrieve the bone from his throat. I couldn't, um, so I pushed it down as far as I could but couldn't get it through to his stomach and I had to go in and do a laparotomy and open up his stomach and I couldn't grasp that bone. It was just stuck beyond my reach. But I found an Alice tissue forceps, which is an instrument I forever think fondly of, and I managed to grasp that bone after a lot of tugging. But I was worried how much damage had I done to this esophagus. And yeah. uh, I phoned up Pete at the hyperbaric facility, and thank goodness he hadn't had too much Christmas grog. And he was like, yeah, no worries, bring the dog in. And we put him in the hyperbaric chamber, and uh, before we knew it, Jock was chewing his drip off, ready to go home, yapping, barking, made a fantastic recovery. So Pete and I came up with this plan to try and make hyperbaric medicine available to vets. And so as part of my sort of day job where I was working in Auckland, I would go out to vet clinics and try and explain to vets the potential benefits of this therapy. And Pete and I went to Massey University to try and help them to understand how wonderful it could be to have a hyperbaric chamber. But it was really, really hard to get uptake. And um, then I moved down to Tauranga and uh, Pete was still in Auckland and he managed to finally get a chamber into one of the clinics up there. And while I was mobile, I wasn't in a position to be able to get a chamber. So as soon as I had my, my first big enough premises, Pete had a chamber for me in it came and uh, yeah, we could treat a whole lot of animals. And then yes, when we moved into the bigger premises three and a half years ago, I, we brought our big hyperbaric chamber that looks like a submarine and we continue to use it. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. So before I let you go, I do want to talk to you about your conservation efforts now. Yeah. And your re and your rehab at uh, Wildlife Rehab and the cat project. No worries. So, um, okay. yeah, with my African background and uh, – I do miss the incredible wildlife that we have in magnificent Africa, but the trade-off is that I live in such a peaceful land and that's just so wonderful for my heart. But um, when I moved to Tauranga and I set up Holistic Vets and I was a mobile service, I met with our local Department of Conservation to find out if I could be of help somehow with wildlife rehabilitation. And I learned that there wasn't much infrastructure around to help. So um, with the help of a couple of volunteers, we set up a charitable trust. Uh, initially, we called it the New Zealand Native Bird and Animal Rescue and Rehabilitation Trust. My marketing knowledge was very poor at that time. <laughs> 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 and over the years, it, came, uh, it, it evolved into the name of ARC, or Animal Rehabilitation Centre. And uh, back in those days, I would provide the veterinary care for wildlife that came in, and then our team of volunteers would provide the fostering care until the wildlife was released again. And these days it works in a similar way, but instead of taking in, you know, the odd bird here and there, we take in more than 800 birds every year, which is really, really a big, big job. 
and um, it's hard and it's costly and wildlife rehab, especially when it comes to birds, is very unforgiving because um, you just look at some of the birds wrong and they die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, t- tell me about the cat project. Yeah, so um, when, when I was probably about six years ago, there was a big problem with stray cats in our, in our city and um, – these cats, you know, they had to fend for themselves because they didn't have anybody to feed them. They weren't de-sexed, so breeding behavior was really hard on them. Um, people would complain because they would fight with the pet cats. They'd go and pee all over the furniture and around the garden. And um, wildlife, of course, gets impacted as well because if nobody feeds the cats, what are they going to eat? Um, they either got to catch some rats or eat some wildlife. So there was there was a bit of a big uproar in our community about it. And uh, I always find in life there's at least three versions to the truth, but usually the two stories, at least two versions of the truth can be quite extreme. So on one hand, there were the conservationists saying you've got to kill all the cats. And on the other hand is what I affectionately call the bunny huggers who want to save all the cats. And uh, it's tricky to make everybody happy, but what we wanted to do is come up with a balance where we could ensure that cats are valued in our society, but as pets that are looked after responsibly and their welfare doesn't suffer, other pet cats are not impacted and our wildlife isn't impacted. So we embarked on this project where we were hoping that we could work together with our community, the city councils, other animal organizations. And in um, a couple of years, we took about 1,200 cats off the streets. And this means that either they were de-sexed and rehomed to responsible homes, or there were many that were in such a bad way they had to be humanely euthanized, which was rough stuff. But in my mind, it's always quality versus quantity. You've got to have quality of life rather than so many cats around. And over time, it was neat because we got the conservationists to understand that, yes, you can have a place for cats in our society as long as they're responsibly looked after and um, the, the bunny huggers started to understand that, gosh, too many cats just letting them live without quality is not so good either. Sure, sure. Okay, last thing. Tell me about the, your uh, children's education. Oh, so <laughs> with uh, more than 800 birds and wildlife that we take in each year, most of these are impacted because of man. So we have uh, injured and orphaned birds, for example. Uh, we have these birds called shags, and we always like to say, we've always got time for a shag. In other parts of the world, they're called cormorants. <laughs> but um, they often come in with fishing line wound around their wings or fish hooks in their beaks. And so we go, well, okay, we can take the fish hook out their beaks and help them to recover where possible. But what can we do to help to make the fishermen aware that if they look after their tackle responsibly, hopefully we're not in this situation. And then birds that come in and they're attacked by cats and uh, we try and help them. Some of them are really badly injured, but how can we get people to look after their cats responsibly? And little blue penguins, we've got this amazing population of these gorgeous penguins on our beaches, but some of them come in and they're attacked by dogs. So we've got a a series of um, kids books called the Art Kids Adventure Series. They're all based on true stories. There's 10 different stories. And they tell the story of a bird that has been injured or orphaned because of what humans have done. And they've all got happy endings. And at the end, they've got facts about that species and also what kids can do to help animals in our environment so that hopefully we don't have more of this go on. And they're ideally there to inspire our kids and ideally to create eco-terrorists that will put pressure on the adults so that the adults start behaving better and looking after our planet. <laughs> That's great. Dr. Schneider, th- thanks so much. I-, I really enjoyed hearing your story. You've got a couple of um, 
webinars coming up for CIVT, and we're certainly looking forward to those too. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.